Hello and welcome back to Full Dusty Jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen. My name is Sam and I am joined by my friend and co-host Sean. Sean, how are you today? I'm doing good, Sam. I'm doing very well. I'm excited to talk about today's book. So this week's episode was my choice of book and this is a book where, I'll be honest, when I first read it, I had already seen um, two versions of it. I'd already seen the movie version of it, as well as the earlier miniseries version of it. And I don't know why, because I loved the two adaptations of this book, actually. I like them both. But I still didn't expect the book to be not only as good as it was, but to be what it was. And that book is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Now, let me preface that a little bit. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, while a spy novel isn't exactly about spies. It's kind of like, just like what The Godfather was or any other great work of literature or filmmaking, where it's about something other than what it is, right? It's saying more than just telling a straightforward story. And yet, having sort of known this from the movies, I still expected when I sat down to read the John le Carre novel that I was going to get a straightforward spy story. Um, even if it bucked certain spy story trends, I still thought at the end of the day it was going to be a largely plot-driven novel. And I don't know why I thought that. I should have known better because I was completely wrong. And the reason I love this book and the reason I suggested that you read it is because I think it's just a great work of writing. Um, you know, when we read Dune and other other sort of genre books, right, sci-fi books, spy book, I always say you can tell when somebody's smart and when they're dumb in terms of a writer, when they're writing intelligently or when they're writing stupidly. And the example I always give is Stephen King. Stephen King writes horror, but he's also stupid. Uh, his books aren't smart. They're just, they're just novels he's writing knowing they'll get turned into screenplays. So I always say, you know, uh, a version of his book is like, and then he said, and then she said, and then he said again, and then yeah, she, he can, yeah, exactly. And then she said, I mean, said, they're, they're practically scripts, yeah. so they're they're ready made for the movies, so that he can immediately get them made and hate them yeah. when they're anything short of his vision. And in response to that, we got uh, Maximum Overdrive, mm-hmm. one of the greatest worst movies <laughs> of all time. So like, there's no intelligence or insight into his novels and into a lot of genre pieces in general. When I was a kid, I used to love sci-fi, but most sci-fi books aren't really saying much. They're just like, what if in this world it was blah, 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 blah. Like not too far off from like a new Wolfenstein video game, right? It was like, it's 2065 and the Nazis are still in control. Um, and they're robots now. Yeah, exactly. But this book isn't that. This book is loaded with insight about people, and it's saying something deeper. Once again, you know, if you listen to either of my podcasts, this or Hidden Gems Movie Podcast, huh, shameless plug, um, you'll know I'm always talking about the human condition, the human condition, and how it relates to art, um, because I think that is the primary goal of art, which is to say something about the human condition, and that's what this book does. Sean, first question: Did you like the book? I did. Um... Partially evidenced by the fact that the day after you recommended this to be a podcast episode, I started reading it that night and finished it up the next afternoon. That's not to say this is a pot boiler with a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, uh, uh, surging along action that makes you want to read the next chapter. Rather that me, if I knew that if I consumed any other media between reading of this book... I was going to lose the plot and the details <laughs> of the characters. So I got to just eat all of it like a Thanksgiving meal as quickly as possible. And then when I got time to think about what I had read, 
uh, yeah, what you it what you mentioned is that Lacar in this novel, it's not so much about the spies or necessarily what they're doing. It's kind of their motivations behind why they're doing what they're doing, and how their tricky business that they're in can come to uh, sometimes cast shadows or doubts on whether they're doing the right thing or for what reasons. So I was really impressed by this. Also, Sean, I think that uh, you reading it straight through the night wasn't necessarily an indication of how good or confusing the book was, but was actually an indication into your crippling cocaine addiction, uh, which we also which we also know is the only drug for gentlemen, the only narcotic for gentlemen. Everything else is for the scum of the earth. Well, you have to take the tincture of opium after the <laughs> cocaine binge in order to get some sleep. Yeah, so I'd argue that a little bit. Yeah, as long as you're, as long as it's making a cocktail, then mm. you're, then you're keeping it classy. Okay, so yeah, no absinthe for me. <laughs> Actually, I think you could have done that. I think you could have poured a little bit on there. Uh, it's just in to, my in my in my college days to to complete the what? How do you say it? raison d'être? What does that mean? Uh, the reason for being. Okay, so I misused that. Yeah, I'm cutting that out of this. No one will ever Go know. Ahead. Yeah, no one will Get ever know. That I, yeah, no one will ever know that I got that wrong. Okay, so let's just sort of give you guys a little bit of the plot here before we completely abandon the plot. Um, mm-hmm. Takes place during the Cold War. I assume the 1960s. So we're only talking about about 20 years removed from World War II, and it takes place within the British intelligence intelligence agency, which is also known within the book as the Circus. By the way, this book has tons of uh, slang for like official British like government terms. Which oh, is, I love it. Yeah, which the is jargon is right, so good. Which is great. And the main character of this book is a character that uh, John Lacar, the author, would use often. His name is George Smiley. He's the he's the essential like bureaucrat. But the difference is he's a bureaucrat and a spy. He's a nebbish little man. He's small. He wears glasses. He's his wife is continuously cheating on him. I feel like that's not a giveaway. Like this is from the very beginning of the book. Like every time he talks to anyone, they're kind of wondering about his wife Anne and like is Anne home? Well, they all just yeah, they always just straightforward point blank they're like, "How's Anne doing?" And it's that British politeness where he just just has to lie back to kind of fulfill the social contract like nobody wants to make anything awkward right so basically in this book um he finds out through some nefarious spy level means that there's a mole in the circus right and it's at the very top of the circus there are like five guys in this book and they're the heads of the various um departments of the british intelligence agency and they are labeled by smiley as tinker tailor soldier and then is one of them actually spy, Sean? Well, it's it's Control. Um, Control was the former head of the intelligence mm-hmm. that suspected that there was a mole. Yeah. And uh, he brought into his confidence an agent called Jim Perdue. And he said one of these, the five top guys, is I believe is to be the mole. And it's based on an English nursery rhyme. And he names them Tinker, Taylor. Uh, it's supposed to be Sailor, but they would only use that because it rhymes with Taylor too close. Right. Uh, soldier, and then Rich Man and Beggar Man. That's right. And to give right. you more of an insight about what people think about Smiley, Smiley is Beggar Man. 
Right, right, right. He's like, they just... See, he's... Okay, so let's let's just say there's a spy in the... There's a mole in the British government, in the intelligence agency. Smiley has been tasked by the government to snuff out the spy. And at this point in the book, Smiley has actually left the agency somewhat in disgrace uh, because Control uh, sent that guy, Jim... What was his last name? Purdue. Purdue, like the chicken? Yeah, it's like French. It's got the E-U-X ending. So he sends Jim Perdue to Hungary, I believe, to like where he thinks he has a source on the mole. But in fact, it turns out that Jim is being set up not by control, but by probably the mole themselves who has caught wind of Mm -hmm. this. And he's shot and captured. And control is forced to resign. And control's kind of like his guy, his second second in command is Smiley. Now, I'll tell you something, Sean. I don't want to give too much away, but I also work for the government. And I'll tell you, when the head of an agency of any kind is fired, the second-in-command goes with them. It's this weird kind of like Pharaoh buries themselves alive with their servants type of thing. Yeah. Like, it, you, you don't know why it goes that way, but it's always, it's always the number two also goes with the number one. It might have to do with, like, loyalty things where it's like if you're getting rid of the number one, you've got to get rid of the number two so you make sure they don't continue number one's agenda. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point because Smiley at this at this section of the book before Control um, gets fired, he's known as Control's cupbearer. Yeah. You know, it's, like, it's not like his lackey, but, yeah, if you're going to get rid of the number one guy and you're not going to put uh, Smiley in his spot – then you have to clean house. And right. that's what happens to Smiley. He gets forced into an early retirement. And the government, you know, they when they get that intelligence from the spy abroad, that's when they bring in Smiley because he's the only one that's outside enough at this point. Because it's roughly, I think in the book, it's put about six months after the incident that causes the shakeup. Uh, I think they actually put years in one of the adaptations, but we're getting ahead of myself there. But, but um, yeah, and I'd, Smiley's such a good character because he's so even-keeled. That's his strength. Nothing is able to rile him up to get angry, and yet he's always dependable to do his job and execute any plans or tasks to the best of his ability. Yeah, let's give this book some context here. Let's let's get away a little bit from the plot now, and let's talk about archetypes. So I think most people at this point, when they think about spy stuff, they they're, what they're really thinking about is James Bond, and not only James Bond, but action films, right? They're thinking about men who can handle themselves in hand-to-hand combat like against like 30 Russian soldiers, and that's not spy shit. And the thing that's wonderful about John le Carre, and I've, oh, by the way, I've only read one John Le Carre novel, and that's this book. But I have to assume it translates across all his books. Um, although I have seen the film Spy That Came In From The Cold, in which Smiley is a minor character. But the point is this. He understands something, which is that intelligence agencies are largely uh, populated by bureaucrats and nebbish men. Like, basically, the host of characters you might see working at a bank, only they happen to be spies. And one thing that he really makes clear, especially with the guy like George Smiley, it's the person you're most underestimating who's probably the one who's like who's getting all the goods you know what i mean smiley is so underestimated by everyone around him and i think he knows it and he uh 
and he develops that persona, you know, so so that people aren't really suspecting him of working behind their backs to get information. So he's the anti James Bond. I mean, does that make is does, I mean, does that seem like a very clear choice on the car's part? Do you think he wrote these novels saying to himself, "I want to make the anti James Bond," or do you just or do you think he just had enough insight into the British intelligence agency that he just said, "I want to write spy novels that are like this." Well, Le Car actually did work for the British intelligence agency, and I think he was trying to portray it in a very accurate light. Um, I'm sure there's still fabrications and some fantastical elements in it, but the way that the circus works is directly opposite of the way that James Bond. In James Bond, there's an evil madman that wants to take over the world or blow something up, and James Bond is the one-man army that they send in to defuse the situation. Whereas in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and a lot of Lacar's novels... You're right, they're running in a bank that trades in information. These are guys that they're trying to set up networks and put people out in the field and just gather the most information they can get, and it's up to them to suss out what's real and useful and what is counterintelligence coming from the other agencies. It's it's very ho-hum. I mean... The, one of the most dangerous things is in the book is uh, a, an agent working for Smiley named Gilliam that has to sneak in and take pictures of something. That's the most like tense like scene in the entire book. Is like, oh no, he's got to take a a picture of this piece of paper. And whereas you know, in a like a Born Identity, it's a thrilling hand to hand fight scene on a train. Yeah. Uh, and that's just not this book's M.O. at all. Yeah, and, and it's much more realistic because this guy, um, Gilliam, or Gilliam, I think is his name, uh, he's taking pictures of secret documents, but also this is the real, the real world, and he knows if anyone even sees him do this, he's going to jail for a long time. I mean, this is no joke what he's doing. You know, it's funny, like, whenever the stakes in anything are raised to life or death everything short of death seems like nothing right but if you keep if you keep everything grounded then everything becomes super real where it's like holy shit this guy's putting it all on the line i mean if he gets caught taking these pictures he's going to jail and you know what he could just as easily do nothing and just go with the flow i'm really glad you brought up um collecting information and how it how it relates to being run like a bank because i'll put it this way a big part of this book and the commentary, the the socio-political commentary of this book, is that basically all they're doing is collecting information. There is no greater goal, right? There's no actual mm-hmm. mission here. This is an agency, and all it's trying to do is have more information on the Russians than the Russians have on them. That's not to say they're going to use the information to do anything. There's no master plan here. It is quite literally about the accumulation of information. And what's funny about that and how it relates to being run like a bank is it's very much like money, right? So imagine you had a guy running a bank and he 
and he makes a bad investment because banks invest money. People don't realize this. They take, they take our money and they invest it. And then imagine he made a bad investment and the bank lost money. Well, that guy would probably be fired by whatever board runs the bank. And it's very much the same in this book where whoever's running the circus, if they make a bad bet, if they make a bad play and they lose information, they're gone. They're not gone because the information's in the enemy hands and now they have the codes to our nuclear bombs, right? It's not about that. It's just they made a bad bet. They've lost money. They're no longer a good investor. But there's nothing beyond the accumulation of information running these agencies. There's no greater goal than that. I mean, you could say the goal is winning the Cold War, but they only see winning the Cold War as as by knowing more about the enemy than the enemy knows about them. Um, did you did you pick up on that at all when you were reading this book? Yeah, it, it's mostly for defensive purposes. Like, am I right? Like, they want to know of their naval mo- uh, movements, where they're training the soldiers, how many this, that, how's their economy doing? Questions that they can't diplomatically ask in a straightforward manner. So they have to kind of gather this information any way they can by putting agents out in the field or trying to turn people in the USSR at the time into becoming agents against their own country. And here's the big part of what I think we're getting at is that it's run like a bank. It's loyal to the government, but there's nothing really binding them to their jobs other than a sense of nationalistic pride or a, a belief in the philosophy of their country. And at this time, England is taking a back seat now to the USA and the USSR. And the whole uh, reason that they're trying to get this mole is because they don't need any more egg on their face at this point. They need to get their shot righted and try to regain some dignity. And the mole is is the guy that I like his ideology flips somewhere halfway through his career and that's why he's able to be um turned to work for for Russia. Well, here's here's where I disagree with you a little bit, right? I understand mm-hmm. what you're saying. But I think the point of this book, the point it's making, is that there is no ideology. The ideology is gone. In fact, it's become so professionalized, the the uh, bureau, the agency, is so ho-hum running, right, that now uh, the gears of it just grind, and nobody actually questions the why. There is no greater ideology. There's just quite simply the task, the task of collecting information. And I think this is a really important part of the book because the more human part of this is when people start to question why they do what they do because mm-hmm. there's almost no um, nationalistic uh, ideology even expressed in the book for the most part. These these characters are just working like it's a job, and there are times and moments of introspection where they actually wonder why they do what they do. Why do they even disagree with the people they disagree with? And part of the thing about getting the mole is that it's not. It's just because America's like out out shining them in this field. It's about making themselves relevant, almost like a basketball team would be. But there's nothing greater than that. I mean, the the agency now is running in a lot of ways just to um, 
to uh, to establish itself, right? It, it's it's sort of like an organism, and its only mode is survival. Uh, survival may not be the right word, but maybe growth, right? The agency or, or relevance, like yeah, because right, with the fading of the ideologies, that's kind of very much hinted at with control having to leave and taking with them Smiley when these were guys that got their start in the in World War Two. And now you're seeing that when the agency gets taken over, the the man in charge, uh, Alaline, yep, is is strictly running it like a business. He's hobnobbing with with government officials. He's setting up his own committees and secret reading rooms, and is just trying to line his pockets with the intel that got him the job. See, this so, is important. This is important, though, right? Because this is the shift that we're talking about, and this is where I think Lacar's commentary on British intelligence is coming in. Where what he's saying is, what started off as an ideological battle between two very different uh, opposing principles of how to run nations really converge into being the same thing. Where the Russian intelligence agencies and the British intelligence agencies are now just working to um how do i put this to perpetuate themselves right or like or offset each other kind like i said to remain relevant yeah it's a game in which they both need each other to exist even though they're trying to beat each other it's one of these weird things is i i hate using like the joker batman uh parable but it's this idea that they while they're both while they're trying to defeat each other they also work to each other's benefit because they keep each other employed i mean i can't think of any better way to say that this book is it's it's like um it's not a symbiotic relationship if there's another biological term where both uh organisms benefit like the germs that live in your gut get to eat some of your food but they also keep you healthy so that's they're like the the two agencies are propping each other up I get exactly what you're saying. And, and, he, and here's the deal, right? So in Control's time, when the first Control, Smiley's man, was in charge, and you get the sense of Smiley himself, there was an ideology, right? These were believers. But when Percy Adeline uh, gets involved and becomes Control himself, it becomes much more what I'm talking about now, which is just... There's no ideology whatsoever, and the only ideology that exists is the accumulation of information to put themselves on top. And in fact, they're willing to take risks to put themselves on top, not even to beat the Russians, but to beat the Americans. They're trying to outshine the Americans. Well, Alaline wants to ally himself with the Americans, and that is one of the things that makes uh, Control hate him originally and not want him to take power, because... The people that Control were working with, it was the World War II. You know, that intelligence that they needed could stop bombs from falling on London. That if they messed up and couldn't break a code or weren't uh, hiding their information well enough, that was strictly life or death. And in this Cold War standoff, there's still very much high stakes with nuclear weapons and, you know, turning other governments into more communist nests, but it's not as immediately real. Right. And in fact, the principles, the principles of this um, agency are so cynical, right? And it's perfectly displayed in a really important scene. Um, and it's the scene where Smiley, he's, he's, he's going into a monologue in which he's remembering the past. Now, here's the deal. The, the head of the 
Russian intelligence agency is named Carla. Okay, and Smiley is is um and he if there is like a sort of a a big bad like Darth Vader style villain, it's this guy Carla, who by the way you never even see, but Smiley is recounting uh to I believe Gillum about the time that he actually was able to interrogate Carla in a Turkish prison before Carla was the head of Russian intelligence. And he's talking to Carla, and he thinks Carla's just a middleman, right? Some, like, kind of, like, you know, like a mid, a middling Russian intelligence uh, bureaucrat, and he's trying to flip Carla. And he's, you know, making Carla all the promises of, you know, moving to the West. He's offering him Western cigarettes. He assumes Carla is like him, which is already devoid of ideals. Even even though this is a flashback, even at this point, Smiley has lost his sense of why he's doing any of this. And it's only in recounting the story does he realize why he got Carla wrong. And it's because Carla actually believes in what he's doing. Carla has an actual set of principles. And what's funny is Smiley realizes that and then considers him a fanatic. Yeah, yeah he immediately labels him. But but the fact of the matter is, he's only labeled a fanatic because he actually knows the deeper level principles of why he's in intelligence to begin with, right? Which means that the British intelligence uh, officials, Smiley and all the other characters, they don't go around thinking, I do this because I believe in Western-style democracy and a free nation in which, you know, you shouldn't have to worry about your neighbor informing on you uh, to some secret police. In fact, they very much exist in a world where they're, like, gathering information not only on the enemies, but on their countrymen. So they're at this point, they're not that far off from what the uh, the Russian intelligence agencies will do. They're just nowhere near as ruthless. Yes, and during that interrogation... Smiley, for the first time, well, not in the book, but recounts how he lost his cool because this was right around the time where he discovered that his wife was having an affair. and One of many times to come. Yeah, and he gets sentimental. And he, along with the cigarettes, he gives Carla the lighter that his wife Anne gave him that was engraved and said, like, to George, yours, Annie, or whatever. And it says to George, like I think, with love and yeah, and this the way that Smiley views it is that's when Carla realized that he's going to take his chance going back to Russia and get shot in a gulag rather than join this weakened, fading system. He sees the weakness in Smiley, and that's why I think Smiley resents him because Carla was the only person to ever break his demeanor or he ever was weak in front of. Do you agree with that? Not, Yeah, not only that, not only does Carla see this, right, but what's even worse is in an interrogation in which Smiley thinks he has the upper hand, it's actually Carla who walks away with what are we talking about here? Information. Mm-hmm. He walks away with information on Smiley. And what is that information? Smiley's weakness. And what is Smiley's weakness? His wife. So not only does he walk away with the upper hand in an encounter where he's the one in cuffs, but the information he gathers is the most sensitive possible information to Smiley. And it's not national intelligence, but it's the love for his wife, mm-hmm. right? And this is why it, it cuts so deeply with Smiley. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about the socio political commentary of this book, but the point is this book goes deeper. 
the thing I love about this book so much, and it, for me, it's, you know, I speak in the language of film. Um, I don't speak too much in the language of literature, but there are passages in this book where they get inside whichever character's head that they're talking about that are just astounding, right? In their level of insight and how deep they go. And I think this is a perfect point in the book in which Carla is not only getting information on Smiley, but he's also able to look into Smiley's personal vulnerabilities, right? Mm-hmm. It goes deeper than, than nations. And it, and it kind of attests to the idea that all these people, they're operating with human motivations and human interests, and they're having a hard time separating, uh, you know, the national, uh, political and ideological, um, enterprise with which they're engaged in the security agencies from their personal selves. And what happens as the book goes further and further is you see how much of the personal self, the life away from work, comes into play and how much it matters. And these guys see no boundaries. There are no boundaries in any of this. It no longer becomes collecting information on codes or troop movements or naval you know, patterns or military stations. It becomes collecting information on people mm-hmm. and their, their deepest, darkest secrets. And this is really important because when we eventually, I think you and I, we should reveal who the mole is because I think it just is so important in tor- towards the book. But this is the information they collect on each other. And it's the kind of, they're all degrading themselves all at once. That's my personal view. What do you think? Well, I like that you brought up that, uh, the relationship aspect, because in a way it's one of the most dangerous things to have is a relationship. For instance, the book begins with the field agent, Ricky Tarr, coming to, you know, say he has information on a mole. And that's when he, he gets interviewed with uh, Smiley and Gillum. And I believe Lacan, the, the civilian kind of overseer of the uh, MI6. And Ricky Tarr, his story is that he falls in love with a Russian woman who happens to be working for the Russian intelligence agency. No, no, her husband. Her well, husband. no, it's like they're, they're, they're both, I think they, it's, they're, like a, they're like a partnership. They weren't, they weren't. I always got the impression it was just her husband. No, I always got the impression it was just her this husband. Is, this is, I don't know if how well it's handled in the BBC adaptation, but in the movie they completely skirt over this. They were basically trained together, and then they were married, and, you know, in quotes, to become partners in order to seem less conspicuous as spies. And, you know, the one can operate without the other. But Tar falls in love with her, and she says that she has information that, you know, on the mole, which is what brings this whole plot in motion. And yet when Tar is saying this, Smiley is grilling him because is this just the guy that fell in love and he's willing to uh, accept her information as the truth or is he seeing it through rose-colored glasses? You see, that relationship becomes a weakness. He has very legit information, but Smiley, if you're in his spot and this younger man is like, oh, I had a torrid love affair with a, a, a beautiful Russian woman and she's, she's feeding me this info that could bring down the inner workings of the MI6, the circus. And, 
you have to think to yourself, did she turn him? Is this fake information just to mess with us? So th that relationship, that aspect is puts into question everything that Tar brings forward. And and what's really, I was going to say, what's really interesting about Tar in that relationship is where's Tar stationed at that time when he runs into this woman? Is it Turkey or something else? He's actually, he's, he's AWOL. He was working as a intelligence gatherer in like the Southeast Pacific. And I think he, I thought, I thought it was, I thought it was like North Africa or Turkey. Cause here's my point. He's stationed as what they call like a headhunter. He's just like, he's a field agent. He's just like looking to see like who are age Russian agents, who are people he can flip. I mean, this, this is like the real grunt. This is the closest kind of guy you get to James Bond. Yeah. Right. Uh, it, yeah. Somebody in, somebody in the field. And he recognizes right away that this woman's husband is, is an agent for the Russian the Russian intelligence agency. He recognizes that. She comes to him and they sort of start an affair and he's purely using her to like get information on her husband, but the interesting thing is that she's also using him. She recognizes uh you never, you don't know when, but probably from the beginning, that he's also working for British intelligence. And she tells him, like, look, I know there's a mole in your British government, and I'll tell you who it is, or I'll tell you about it if you, you know, give me citizenship uh, to the West, to England. And Tar is still playing her for a while until he eventually falls in love with her. He doesn't fall in love with her right away. And it's interesting that you watch these dynamics occur because these people are are willing to completely use one another in the most intimate ways. I mean, they like I said, they're always going right for the jugular. And what I mean by that is they're going right for the emotional stuff. They are trying to get people to fall in love with them so they can use them. It is really, forget like life and death. I mean, this is the really brutal stuff. Yeah, it's even known as, uh, as a honeypot scheme right <laughs> where they, they use somebody's uh sexual attraction to somebody else in order to make them slip up and you know say something during pillow talk that could compromise them or their business and so yeah and uh even gillum uh he's having a relationship with um a woman and he finds out that she's married to a, uh not an english person but to somebody else and he realizes even though he's developing uh, harder feelings for her, he has to leave her because there's no way he can figure out whether or not he just got honey potted, if that's what you want. You know, and uh, he has to sacrifice that relationship in order to continue doing his job. So, yeah, the, it's it's a ruthless industry and you do have to make sacrifices. And the only person that was happily married with Smiley and she ends up betraying him. Everybody in this book just, there's just no love lost in this book. Well, the funny thing about Smiley is that he's never happily married. I mean, even from the start of this book, you get the sense that Anne has been cheating on him for years. He knows it. He occasionally kicks her out and he always accepts her back. I mean, this is as toxic as a relationship as it gets. Um, so, you, you know, but the funny thing is like these, these people, they're constantly wrecking their lives, their personal lives, because the job is now like the collection information is all about the personal. It's not about the political and they have no escape from this. And I think we're getting sort of to the point. We should start talking about the characters and then reveal who the mole is. Um, so the main guys, 
the main guys in the circus are Toby Esterhaus. Um, what's his uh, his designation? Do you remember? He is rich man. He is not. I think he is Austrian born. He's head of the. Yeah, he's head of what they call the lamp lighters. Did you ever understand what his like department was? His was surveillance. He was the wiretappers, the the people on the pavement that would trail people. He was the most, uh, I guess, stranger in a van with a, an extra radio antenna on the top of it kind of person. Yeah, he's considered to be like the sleaziest guy yeah, in the book. Because he is he's trying to justify himself at the circus because he's not English born, but he wants so desperately to be accepted. So he's like a little lap dog. Mm-hmm. He's, he's considered Adeline's lap dog. And then there's um Roy. Who is, do you remember Roy's last name? Uh, it's Roy Bog Scab. He's got like no, no, bland, no. bland, Roy bland, and Roy bland. He's, he, he's soldier. Yeah. And he's, he's, Literally his namesake. Bland does almost nothing in this book. Yeah, I was gonna, exactly. I was going to say, he's pretty much a non-factor. He's like the tough guy, right? He's like in charge of, I guess, the field operations. Like he's Well, he's he's the big Soviet guy. He's the one that runs in the Balkans. Yeah, but he's, he's a non-factor. You get almost right away that he's not the mole, just because they don't go uh, deep enough into him. Uh, then there's Percy Adeline, who's control, who may very well be the mole. And there's also... Um, what is Taylor's name? Um, Taylor is Esther House. No, no, no. Because Ta- no. Tinker is Alaline. Taylor's Esther House. No, no. Taylor's uh, not Soldier. Ed- Taylor's not well, Esther House. I believe so. And because Soldier is bland. Okay. And then Richmond. Wait, no, I did get it wrong. No, Bill is. Taylor. Bill's Taylor because Bill is always like wearing fancy clothes. So Bill's like a cad. He's a scoundrel. He's the most cynical of the bunch. Um, he's he's kind of like the smoothest talking. Like he's like Bond, but if Bond wasn't an action hero, right? He's just a total ladies man. Um, and and men. He's, well, he's, we got to We're not. We're both not, sides we're, of the field. Well, we weren't into that yet, Sean. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna get to that. And also, I don't remember if that's actually in the book. The nature of yep. that relationship. Yep. Okay, good. It's, it's, I all, it's to, in the book. I, I mean, I know they were close. I just don't remember if it was ever like. I don't think it's ever explicitly said. No, but it's heavily hinted at. Okay, we, I guess we could talk about. So that we one. we should talk about it. Good okay, way. so here here we go. Um, so so uh, what's it? So Bill, right? Bill's also uh, sleeping with George's wife. Um, and George knows it, and it's one of these things where. George doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't even confront Bill about it. And Bill, Bill's also, in some ways, the most likable of all of the uh, the top agency officials. He's he's the most easygoing. Um, but he's also kind of like he's the most shallow. He seems to be to have the least amount of skin in the game. Um, yeah, he's very he's very sloppy. in In the book, he's described as. He leaves his office door wide open and he doesn't lock it behind him, which is in an intelligence gathering agency. That's, I think, uh, belies his his swagger, his confidence in what he's doing, because he's also uh, described as a genius. I mean, like he's mastered a bunch of different languages, uh, just super smart. There is a reason why he is uh, the commander at the circus is because he earned the job. Well, and what's his actual job? He's the commander. He he's he's 
not... He's not control. He's below right. control. But he is an overseer of the operations. I think everything has... To, before it goes to control, it has to get by Bill. Whereas where Smiley is kind of like a floating thing where whatever they need Smiley to do, they will go send Smiley to do. But uh, Hayden is always the one that's at home, which I believe is what contributes Hayden to, you know, trying to seduce George's wife, Anne, who also happens to be Hayden's cousin in just a delightful British twist. Yeah, right. Okay, so so by the way, he means Bill Hayden, in case anyone uh, wasn't picking up on that. Um, so now I think it's time for spoilers. I don't think we can go any further, Sean, until... Because some of the things I want to talk about um, that are really important need the spoiler. So I'm going to do it now. Anyone that's listening, if you don't want to know the spoiler, you you know, either go watch the movie, read the book, whatever it is, I'm going to spoil it right now. Okay, Bill is the mole. All right. And what's really funny is the reason I was talking about how um, Bill seems to be the most cynical of the bunch, the one who prescribes the least to any sort of ideology, is that it's the opposite. Bill is the, in my opinion, Bill is the only one of the bunch who has any ideology because the reason he becomes the mole is because he sees the entire operation as one ugly affair. He doesn't uh, think that what the agency is doing has any honor to it whatsoever. Sort of everything you and I have been talking about, he sees pretty clearly. And as a result, he decides to help the Russians. He, he, he literally says like something has been lost. Like we've lost sight of like why we do this. So in a real, I think the real reveal is not that Bill is the mole, but in fact that Bill is the one with ideology. Uh, what do you think about that? Yes, I believe that uh, in the edition that I read, there's a foreword by Lacar himself, and he makes note that Smiley and Hayden, Bill Hayden, are the exact opposites, where I believe it's that Smiley was, you know, he was hyped, like born well in the society and kind of just had all that you know, uh, aristocracy about him. and he, He's well born. Yeah, and he had he married Anne, who is not only considered um, an attractive woman in her own right, but she's also a, uh, an important member of a very politically active family. Um, I believe her family member, like she, just gives George much more credence and everything. Whereas with Bill Hayden, he is coming from a working class background, and he had to fight for everything and. It's that kind of um, not, I want to say, lowborn quality, but it's that he no longer believes in the aristocracy is doing the right thing. In a way, he reminds me very much of, uh, of Hamilton because he is trying to, he got himself into a high you know, space in the authority, uh, but he never quite was able to basically be master of his own fate the, the way i see it is when everyone loses their faith right everybody in this book in a sense loses their faith but bill is the only one who loses it and decides to do something about it everyone else apathetically goes about their routines of their job without ever really thinking too deeply about what does this all mean 
Bill does the opposite. Bill says, we've lost sight of why we do this. And as a result, and it's never truly explained, but he flips. He becomes a mole for the Russians um, because I think there's like a sense of betrayal that he feels um, in regards to the work and the ideology that now they're just uh, they're just going so, you know, so past the point of how they started. And in fact, the way this ties back to Carla and the lighter and the knowing about Anne is that Carla is the one who tells Bill to sleep with Smiley's wife and to make sure that Smiley finds out. And the reason for this is that it clouds Smiley's judgment about Bill. When he sees Bill, all he sees is a guy who's fucking his wife and he can't think clearly about him. This is really important. So, not only does Carla collect this information about uh, Smiley, but he actually uses it towards some sort of effect, which is so rare in this novel. Yeah, he, he I think in the book they describe it as muddying the waters. And Smiley, he can't, because he's so even-keeled, he doesn't want to point the finger at Bill because that almost seems like a knee-jerk reaction there's a mole. Oh, it's that bastard Bill over there. <laughs> That's right. He doesn't want to assume it's the guy sleeping with his wife. He's literally thinking to himself, like, if I just assume it's Bill, it's because I'm mad at him for sleeping with my wife. It's very cold-blooded. It's very it's very English in my mind, like that kind of thing, <laughs> where if it's, you know, uh, God forbid, sorry for being stereotyped, but if it was like a Spanish person or an Italian person or even most American people, they'd be like, you fuck my wife? <laughs> you know, they'd go full on casino. The British never talk about it. And now I think it's an important part when we talk about sacrifice, right? Everybody in this book sacrifices something working for the agency. And Bill is no less. He also sacrifices something. And here's what it is. Just like you said how things have to be run by Bill in regards to operations, Bill is a homosexual with Jim Perdue, who is the agent that Control initially sends to Hungary to find out about the mole in the circus. And I guess when Jim finds out, no, sorry, not Jim. When Bill finds out that Jim is going to Hungary to find out the identity of the mole, he sets him up. And the thing is that Jim is in love, sorry, Bill is in love with Jim and Jim is in love with Bill. So he is actually sacrificing his relationship for this not only to not get be caught out as the mole, but for his ideology. He is sacrificing something. He's so when when the operation goes awry in Hungary and uh and Bill is killed, so to speak, he's actually not killed. No, um, you mean Jim. Sorry, yeah, God, yeah. I get I get these guys confused. So when when Jim goes out to Hungary and Bill sets him up and uh and and Jim is supposedly killed by, you know, Soviet intelligence forces, everyone just assumes that Bill is totally broken up about it because they were, quote-unquote, very close. So it also helps cloud everybody's uh, minds around it because they assume that, you know, that that Bill would never set up Jim, not because they're lovers, but because they are, quote-unquote, so close. I don't quite believe from my reading that Bill was directly influential in setting up the sting operation on Jim. He He knew about it. But he didn't say anything. I thought he set him up. I thought he. No. I thought he tipped off the Hungarians about it. Well, it's it's the Russians. I think the operation takes place in Czechoslovakia. Okay. Control gets false information that there is a a Russian mid level but 
um, mid-level military guy, but he's on the boards. He on like the military and government boards. So he is rising in status and control gets fake information that this uh, Russian general wants to flip. So he sends Jim on this uh, top secret mission. Only Jim and control in the circus know about this mission. And when Jim arrives, almost from the get-go, Jim senses that there's something off. He's being followed all along his uh, trip into Czechoslovakia. And he actually brings in a, a, a babysitter, which is the delightful jargon term for a bodyguard, somebody that Jim trusts in the region. And at some point, Jim knows he's walking into a trap. So he calls the bodyguard off. And he goes willingly, almost willingly, into this trap. And the Russians are lying in wait for him. And he gets shot in the back and taken prisoner. And when the news hits the circus, because this uh, sparks off an international incident, which is one of the main reasons why Control loses his job. That's right. And when the news is coming over on... um, I think it was not like the telegraph, but like the the, the ticker tape machine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Bill comes in late and he knows about it, but he said he got the information from the ticker tape machine and Smiley in his investigation puts it together that by the time the news got to the club where Bill was at, the, the, the ticker tape, he, Bill wasn't there late enough. So he already knew, like, he already knew. This is the problem with recounting the plot of this book. Um, first of all, I also, I also think the book is meant to be deliberately confusing because most of the people in this book are confused themselves most of the time. Um, I want to I talk about Jim a little bit before we wrap up uh, this section of just talking about this book. And it relates to why I think Bill betrayed Jim. Um so Jim, it turns out, and, and we've sort of, we haven't talked about this at all because Jim's a major part of this book. Jim has not only survived being shot by in the back, not only survived Soviet interrogation and torture, he's actually released. Uh, in fact, I think Bill is the one that arranges for his release. Am I wrong on that? I'm not sure, but he is, he is traded, but in exchange to get, uh, in exchange to get Jim back, they, he has to give up the entire his entire network. So to get Jim back, I think somewhere around a half half a dozen people are taken to Russia and they're shot. And that's like one of the things that weighs on Bill eventually. Yeah. So so here's the deal, right? Jim for most of this book is working at an all boys school. Um, he's like living in a trailer outside the school and he's teaching Lord knows what, like I don't even know what subjects he's teaching. French. He's teaching French. He's teaching French. Like linguistics. Okay. There you go. And a large section of this book is just Jim at this school connecting with this young, uh, kid that he calls, do you call him specs? Yeah. Because he's, he's a watcher. He's his lookout. And also, like, he wears glasses. Like, the kid's kind of a nerd. He's a little bullied, and he's very observant. And Jim sort of recognizes right away that he has some of the qualities that make for a good spy, which is just being on the outside of things, looking in, being observant, and casually going unnoticed. But let me ask you a question, Sean. Yeah. What do you think the multiple parts of the Jim sections are really about? Why does he 
includes so much of Jim and Jim's time at the school and away from the main plot of the book. I believe that they do that because Jim plays a integral part at the very end of the book, which is a super spoiler. But it needs to show, again, the sacrifice of what happens if you lose the game of spying, I guess is what it's called. Jim can never go back out into a field. He's internationally known. As a matter of fact, I thought one of the, the funniest things was is that so Jim in the book, he flees from the Russians and he gets uh, in a car. The car gets machine gunned up. He crashes. He gets shot in the back. And the first thing that the Russians do is just take his picture. They flip him over and start snapping, the, you know, Polaroids. Yeah. <laughs> and so he can never work in the field again. So he has to retire to the English countryside and take up this position. And he he wasn't given proper medical treatment as a part of the Russians' plan for his interrogation. So he's still pained by the the wound that he received in the shoulder. So here's a man that was you know, fighting for country and ended up getting shot and now lives in almost daily pain, teaching a job that he doesn't really care about and him still, you know, via through specs and uh, he actually connects with like the groundskeeper in because he knows that his past is always there to haunt him. At one point, he digs up a gun that he buried outside the trailer and he gets it ready because he starts sensing that the past is catching up with him. So not only does he have to sacrifice his present, but also his future and his past. This is a a, a man that's kind of adrift in time. So I think. So I, I think I think the point then is that there's nothing left for these guys. Yeah. Especially for these field guys. When it's all over, there's nothing left for them. They end up living in trailers, taking jobs in like the English countryside. Like there's just there's no uh, there's no good retirement plan for these guys. They're used up. Yes. Um. And I want to give this. I want to give the spoiler away because it's why I think that Bill is the one who directly betrayed Jim. Um. So once this book kind of wraps up and you know and bill is caught by smiley of course and bill is arrested and he's held in like a holding cabin it's really weird they don't put him in jail they like put him in like like almost like a countryside home under surveillance where they uh do the training it's a hidden it's a small town and that's where you get like your spy training and they and in fact i think they're gonna send him to the russians yes like that's the idea they make a deal for him yeah because because they're going to trade people again. That's basically what happens every time like an agent gets caught. You just trade you have to trade and start again. But go on. And and you don't and in the movies you see it, in the books it's just suggested, but what what happens is that uh is it's implied that Jim sneaks into this to this essentially prison in the middle of the night and he snaps Bill's neck. He like karate chops him to death and then he disappears. He's like gone. He doesn't go back to the school. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, and that... Does he go back to the school? I don't believe he does. It's it's just, these people live... Yeah, which is sad. Not only in their professional lives as shadows and whispers, but out of out of their professional lives, they're doomed to be shadow people for the, you know, for the remainder of their days. So there's, the, the larger sacrifice is their lives. So if you're not doing this, you're not doing this job for the money because there's not a retirement plan 
The only one that I got the sense that was is Alaline. Well, I think there's a reti- I think there is a retirement plan. It's just like it's just money. There's no like you know they don't get to come back to the office and like you know like they're discarded so to speak. Here's some cash now. Go fuck off. Right, because well they can they can never. He's a soldier, you know. Jim's a soldier. Yeah, and they and they run the risk that if in you know the future they do get caught or God forbid the Russians get wind of what alias you're given or where you're retiring, there's always that sense that somebody could come up to you and kidnap you and try to learn what you knew during your time working for the job. Retirement retirement for somebody like Jim is basically witness protection program. Exactly. And it's almost for like everybody. I think Alaline is setting himself up for a political career. Right. You know, if he can get into that. Um, But yeah, there's... why why do you take this job in the first place i think is the big question and it's you have to you have to have something you have to have some reason d'etre to do uh, the you job just, you just wanted to embarrass oh. me you wanted to use oh, it correctly yeah. <laughs> wow i see how it is okay no, go, go on anything else you want to you want to shame me with uh no but i thought there was a in the book and I believe that they happened in the movie too, where mm-hmm. uh, while Jim's teaching a classroom one day, an owl comes down out of the chimney, and Jim just immediately grabs it and runs off to the bathroom. This isn't the, the way the book tells it. Uh, the movie doesn't much more movie like. But Jim takes the owl into the hallway. The boys in his classroom don't know what's happening, and Jim comes back and just offhand remark says oh the owl need to go to the bathroom but later they find the owl on the rubbish heap outside with its neck snapped so it's a good foretelling that's the little novel the writer in the car coming through okay so i just want to say the reason i think that bill directly betrayed jim and led to his imprisonment is because i don't think jim kills bill out of a sense of like oh you betrayed the country i think it's very much you betrayed me but that's why i think that's why i think bill did it that's why i think bill's responsible you know what i mean well i would still hold a grudge that if a former lover of mine knew i was walking into a a life or death trap and you know kept their mouth shut because they were working for our sworn enemy I could see taking that very much close to heart. You know, either way, whether or not he gave the order or didn't tell me, I I don't care. Yeah. I'm still pissed. The details of this, this, I think the details of this book are murky. I think they're supposed to be murky. I think you're never supposed to get a good idea of what's going on. And once again, what this book is really about is people and what makes them tick. Sean, if, if I could describe this book in one word, I would just say sad. This is a sad book. These are sad people with a sad profession leading pretty sad lives. It, you know, it's grim. It's, it's, it, the uh, shameless plug, it's dusty. You read this book, you're not getting action. You're getting mostly Smiley in a room recounting the past or Jim teaching in a, in a schoolhouse that he has no, no passion for. You are getting husks of men trying to redeem themselves i think jim tries to redeem himself by the friendship with the student and smiley's trying to redeem the ghost of uh of the circus you know try to give it some dignity again also he's got nothing he's there's nothing at home for him to to come to sean let me ask you what do you think about the writing in this book 
Because this is the thing I keep, you know, I think is the hardest thing to like explain how good the writing is, how intelligent the author is. I mean, can you imagine talking to Lacar? Like, it must be fascinating because based on the way he writes, he's probably just a great hang. Yeah, it's very subtle. Uh, I think the plotting and the pacing is in like very very well done. I like. I wouldn't be able but forget to forget the forget the plotting and the pacing. I mean, like well, um, the level of insight. Right. You know what I and mean. I think forget that's the plot. The next thing, his characterization is wonderful. Every character has their own voice. They speak exactly as like you would expect and come to expect. And there's little touches all throughout the book. You know, the scene with the owl, the fact that at one point Bill uh, walks into a meeting. And he's covering up the top of his teacup. And this is before he's outed as the mole. But if you read into it, like, that's his body language. Bill's hiding something. Just little flashes like that that make Lacar credible not only as, like, an intelligence gatherer because he was so observant. He needed to know how people tick. He had to watch people. And that translates into the book. Well, I think my favorite part of the writing of this book is actually the personal revelations. Once he starts talking about what the characters are thinking, I think is where the book gets really masterful. Um, He's able to express what these characters are thinking in a way where even though it's the characters thinking thoughts, what it really is is Lacar saying what he truly wants to say but he's doing it through what aren't exactly internal monologues for these characters because like there's no dialogue quotes like dune would have done but just like smiley wondered if you know he even knew why he did the same there's so much character a wonders why about something which gets at the deeper parts of life and why anyone does what they do but he just happens to use spies to make these points um i just think the writing is clearly the writing of a very intelligent man no yeah obviously you don't get that amount of insight if you're not if you're numb to the world if you're just all about yourself and you got the big ego and everything like that, but not the brains to match. Uh, if you're just a reserved, intelligent, introspective person, that you, which you have to be. If Lacar is probably not a good hang, I'm sure. Yeah, you, you know could, what? You're probably right. I'm sure you could, you know, give him a couple of snifters of brandy and he'll open up a bit. But the the way that he has those insights can only come from somebody that's in their own head half the time. You know what? I just thought of a good way of putting this. Um, Lacar is like Tom Clancy if Tom Clancy also had any insight into the human condition. Yeah. No, I mean, that's good. I don't never read, I've never read any Tom Clancy. But <laughs> Tom Clancy does the thing where he gets the technocratic parts right. He gets the little details into these, you know, into the operations of the United States Navy specifically correct. But the, just like Lacar gets it right about the intelligence agencies of, of England, but the thing that Lacar also does is he's saying something about the human condition and people, and Tom Clancy's not. Time, there was a time where literally I heard the United States Navy wondered if Tom Clancy had like inside sources because he was getting so many of their protocols so correct. And what, he just got like empty action figures running around as the main characters type thing? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Actually, what he was actually doing, though, is he was going to the bars of Annapolis and chatting up like retired people from the Navy. And that's how he was getting his information. Sean, any final thoughts on the book before we just talk a little bit about the adaptations? No, I, I 
like I said, I'm a big fan of the jargon in this book. There's just some great terms and the way that it's it's run, there's a the part of the uh the scalp hunters, which is the like the the rough and gruff, like the assassinations, anything where force needs to be uh administered, that's run out of an abandoned school building. Uh and there's like a laundromat that serves as Esther House's uh center for for his spying operations. It's just so drab and dreary. And then you've got uh, the janitors, which are basically doormen that just kind of make sure that the right people are leaving. And I believe there's a segment where there's a throwaway character that Smiley interviews. Um, He was an agent out in the field and he ends up working the radio the night that Jim Purdue, his mission goes awry. So he was the first one to get it. But when he wasn't at the radio, he was walking around and seeing if um, he was seeing if the alarms were working and he takes the janitors to task about it. And later on, he gets fired because the janitors showed the housekeepers, which are kind of like the internal affairs of the circus. The, the the couple of empty beer cans that were in the radio room. So the it's just backbiting little office politics. It's not J- James Bond going to an underground lair and getting a laser pen. These are just people. I was gonna say the exact these are just same people thing. People doing their job like they're punching a clock nine to five. It's it's a beautiful down to earth book. Yeah, the easy pitch for this book is the anti-James Bond. However, that's not really what the book's about. The book is no. about people. Yeah. Sean, did you watch the miniseries, the BBC miniseries version of this book? I, I watched the first episode, and I quite liked it, but I was unwilling to commit. And then one night, I tried to watch the the major motion film with... Uh, mm-hmm. And what are you from like 1925? Like I tried to watch the picture. I tried, of it. Yeah, I checked out the talkie wa- on a yeah. on a, a, wanna, a, a major Warner Brothers release. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I uh, I I started watching that and I did not like it. I thought. Now here's my thing because it's an adaptation, and you had said that you seen both the adaptations before you read the book. Mm-hmm. I am the direct opposite. If I'm starting to watch a movie. And it says, based on the book by so-and-so, and I didn't know that there was a book, I will, nine times out of ten, stop the movie and get a copy of the book and read it and then compare it to the movie. See, I think I think that's a terrible idea. I think uh, you should always watch the movie adaptation of a book before you read the book. And I say this all the time. It's real simple. A book can only a, a movie can only cut from a book it can only take away from a book mm-hmm. a book can only add to a movie so if you watch the movie first and then you read the book you're just getting more of the shit that you liked from the movie but if you read the book first and then you watch the movie all you're noticing is what's missing and that's why you should always watch the adaptations first so you shouldn't be you shouldn't be stopping to read the book. You should be like, "All right, let me watch this." I still firmly believe in my philosophy. And my major example of that is A Clockwork Orange. Okay. I had seen The Clockwork Orange before I had read the book. Yeah. And in reading the book, Kubrick is actually extremely faithful to that book to the point, well, not extremely faithful. The ending is kind of up in the air. But to the point that I was as I was reading it, 
the the movie picture that there the picture in my mind was entirely the the Kubrick movie. I could not for the life of me getting out of my head. See, I and like that. Been, I like when I it does that, that work for that. you. Oh, I I enjoy that. I, I like that it does that work for you. I don't like getting, you know, an actor uh an actor's face stuck in my head and having to get that actor inside my thoughts as I'm reading the book. I'd rather read the book first for my own kind of images and my own takes on the book, absorb it that way, and then watch a movie. And then I don't take the movie to task to be a perfect adaptation of the book. I simply want to see what the director's vision was for it. And to use another Kubrick example, the original Shining is not a very good book. And Kubrick elevated that material because his vision was just so much better for the story that King was trying to tell. And I will, to this day, uh, stop the movie because I'd rather read the book first and, you know, form my own imagery. I like having the actors because that way I can skim over the physical descriptions of the characters, which well, I always anyway, hate Anyway, so that brings me to that I didn't like the, the motion picture because it had to truncate so much. And you're right. That's me saying like, well, the mm-hmm. book, you can't fit everything from the book. But my question is, is that I understand this book was a very well-selling book at its time because it actually was released shortly after the real MI6 had a mole exposed to the country. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That was the art. That was the art guy. That was actually, um, I believe he was like the Queen of England's like art historian. Oh, I don't. Yeah. I know exactly who you're. T- I know exactly. I know exactly who you're talking. There, there's there was a famous spy ring in England for the communists, and one of them turned out to be like a very prominent art history like professor. And I think that might be the thing. And I understand why you would adapt it into a. I think what seven parts, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the the BBC. Yeah, I, for the life of yep. me, can't think why anybody would even want to try to adapt this book into a like a two and a half hour film i have no idea you lose so much and the book i don't even think lends itself to being uh uh, adapted into any type of film tv or movies i think this book i actually think they're both good i think they're both good I really do. I think they're both quite successful. I like I like the mm-hmm. miniseries a little bit more. And after I watched the movie for the first time, I wasn't too hot on it. And then I watched it again and I liked it a lot more. I think there are some real bravo bravo bravo. Bra- bra- like with A U at the end. Uh Bravura. Bravo. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think there are some really astounding fil- um sequences in the movie, specifically the end of the movie when that song comes on. It's like da 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 Wait, did you actually what, the, watch it? The movie? I did, did not Did finish you finish the movie? the movie? Yeah. I'll admit that. I uh, liked Well, I I like I recommend the way them both. that Well, here's the thing that is just the immediate kind of clue in as to why I prefer the books to the movies is that the book starts mm-hmm. with the arrival of Jim at the school. And it's not until yeah, about right. 75% of the book do you get the actual uh, retelling of the night that Jim uh, gets trapped. Both the book and the adaptation yeah. start immediately with that. 
and that's what you have to do because yeah, you but have you, to but you got the it. audience. Yeah, but you, you to gotta me, do that, that changes the tone of the entire story to trick, not trick, well, actually kind of trick, trick the viewer into that they're going to get an action kind of movie. I mean, even in the BBC adaptation, it's not as simple as uh, Jim crashes the car and then he's caught off guard and gets shot in the back once. He drives and then there's a crash and he's running through the woods. There's all these big military shots, dogs barking, and then eventually he gets shot. I kind of like the movie adaptation where he's sitting in that courtyard and it's, it looks beautiful. Whoever directed it did a great job. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the movie is gorgeous to look at. Even then, I think that, that scene in the, the movie adaptation is a good way to start if you're going to do it because it, it doesn't make it that big military sting. It, it's just another person, another spy agent that happens to shoot Jim in the back but even then, like, you get the, the the Russian officials being like, what are you doing? You weren't supposed to shoot him. And I think it added yeah, another yeah. layer to the story. And I don't know. I thought. I think it's worth re- I think it's worth watching both adaptations. Sean. I think if you want to really get do. the digest, stick to the BBC thing. But otherwise, you need to re- I think you need to read the book first. It's the only way to do it properly. I think you should watch the series first so that you're not too concerned with the plot of the book. And that way you can really pay attention to like the writing details, like the characterizations in the book. Sean, I told you we well, were... that's sound advice. <laughs> Sean, I, I told you we were going to cast this thing. We're already running long. We're not going to cast this thing for a third time. It's literally already had two separate casts doing it. <laughs> yeah, and, and a, uh, a radio adaptation, which I'm actually interested in listening oh, to. Oh, you know what? I have listened to that. It's okay. Is it... Yeah, it's, it's not okay. bad. It's a, you know, I, I decided I didn't need three different versions of it. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and by four, the way, four. <laughs> by the way, I can think of at least I can think of at least four actors on film and television who have portrayed George Smiley uh, because there's a Sidney Lumet version of a book that stars George Smiley. There is the spy who came in from the cold, which has George Smiley. There are the two main adaptations of Tinker Taylor. So we're not going to, we we're got not smiley cast this. out the wazoo. Yeah. I think yeah, the only we're way not, we're not going to cast this again. You could get away with it. If you do stunt casting and I would pick, um, I would think the rock, <laughs> the rock oh, okay I'm just gonna, go opposite gonna, of what the book is i'll go about. i'll go i'll go stone cold then <laughs> I, I, you know, I want to i, no, I want to no, as smiley i want to see tinker taylor entirely recast with only wwf wrestlers absolutely that would be so good that would sell tickets actually you know you know who's got to be smiley it's got to be mankind well well not mankind at the height it, like it would be i would think it would be mick foley no i think mankind with the mask because he's got to be sad. All right, now we're getting off. Now we're getting off the rails here. Uh, sorry to any of you who didn't watch 1990s professional wrestling. Sean, this was a good one, guys. I promise the next book will not be as complex as this book. Uh, we will try and go for more straightforward stories in the future. I know we've done a lot of complicated ones like Burr and Dune and uh, and Tinker Taylor. We will try to do some some straightforward stories. Yeah, go for it. Just tease it. Do a teaser. Wow, what a pro. You just started doing this, Sean, and now look at you, teasing things. You're just teasing things now.
Well, starters, I thought she was a man, but continue. That was my first preconception. Right on. Sean, this was a good one. It was good talking to you. And until next time.